0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Warrior You podcast with your hosts, Bram Conley, Reese Duar, and Coach Louise Benoit. These podcasts seek to provide you with ongoing motivation towards your goals. We will explore topics around nutrition, physical preparation, and motivation, as well as discussing what to expect from life in the military. For more information on today's podcast, be sure to visit the show notes and don't forget the Mentors for Military podcast too. Drop in and have a listen. Hi there. Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Rhys Dowden. He's the owner of Operator Edge, a company through which he provides to his clients extensive mental conditioning, along with military, self-defence and strength training. Rhys grew up in Queensland. He enlisted in the army as soon as he was 18. He then served a little more than four years in the Royal Australian Armoured Corps. Later on, he served on Steve Irwin's personal security detail at the Australia Zoo and then worked as a private security contractor in Iraq between 2004 and 2006 before re-enlisting in the army and going through the commando selection and training course in 2008. He completed two tours of duty in Afghanistan with the 2nd Commando Regiment. One of those tours, he was an operator and on the other tour, a sniper. He accrued, all told, 10 years of military service. I think that you'll really find this an interesting and down-to-earth conversation with one of Australia's true warriors. I hope you enjoy it. I want to ask you first is what made you join the Army the first time? What was the the motivator behind joining the Army
1: initially the, the first time you joined? I guess it was always... An interest of mine. It was, all, I guess, it was all, not not so much always in the blood because it wasn't. We didn't have a lot of you know military people in the family, but I did army cadets from a young age, and I think that I guess it's quite a manly thing to do, isn't it? It's it's kind of ingrained in you somewhere to have that thought or inclination to or like about the military, and I think it's just it's just stronger than in some people than, than others, and. Because I did um, kids from a young age, I really got the inspiration, I suppose. I really got the drive and I thought, well, I knew that was all, all I was going to do. I guess it's the adventure and being able to travel and, and be with like-minded people, you know, as a career. So that's, that's what I always thought that would, yeah. that would um, suit me.
0: Yeah, I was pretty much the same. I think it was a, a lot with me was that high school, first year in high school, we started doing a lot of stuff about World War One. Gallipoli and and where everyone else was talking about the carnage of it all and everything. We we read All Quiet and the Western Front and a couple of other things. I think I saw Adventure away from sleepy Tea Tree Gully. Some yeah. these people travelling overseas on boats and fighting the Germans then. But realistically to me it just it was just that sense of adventure. So And I, I think I knew as well that I was gonna join the army at a pretty young age. I think you're probably predestined to do it and you, you don't have much control over it anyway, maybe, I don't know if you believe in that spiritual sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of people have a thought about the military, especially if they play team sports and and you're kind of that blokey guy growing up, Mm. knock around sort of guy that I think most people do have an interest in at least think about it. And there's probably a lot of other things that pull them different directions and in regards to doing what other people think they should do rather than what they want to do, which, you know, we can talk about as well. But, I think that's why a lot of people end up joining later as well. There's a good, there's a really good quote. Um, Tony Atta came and visited, and he said that there was this quote because he always regretted not joining the military as well. And there was a famous quote. I can't remember who it's from, but it, it was said that that their biggest regret was joining the military because it's a thing that it's an idea that everybody has mm. throughout their life, and it can be a big regret for some people as well.
0: Yeah, I see that a lot people message me a lot about you know older guys so in their 30s and 40s saying I've always wanted to do this and I never have and it's really difficult for me to push those guys especially in the 40 year olds you know to push them into the military because I know what I know what they're about to be exposed to as well like you can't just go and get through kapuka as a 40 year old without some serious sort of mental preparation for the in some cases the boredom that's to come and also the you know when you're 18 like we both were I guess when you go in, you can recover from those sessions easy. And just making testosterone every night. You don't even realize it's what's going on. The next day you're up, you're fresh again. You try and do that when you you know, I did a 10-kilometer walk a couple of weeks ago with the kids and, you know, they rode their scooters and I just walked with them. You know, you and I were doing 20-kilometer infills in Afghanistan carrying packs and stuff, not seven years ago. A couple of months ago, I did a 10-kilometer walk with the kids. I got up the next day, I could hardly walk. I was like, what the hell? So in, your, in, your, in my 40s, it's sort of like oh, well, this isn't – it's not as easy as it should be.
1: You're not conditioned to it as well. I think yeah, if, you, if, if we had kept doing it and, and, and being conditioned to, to that kind of activity, it wouldn't be so bad. But I did a 20K walk for – it was something a couple of years ago and and I had this girl at the gym who was a weapon. She ended up going on that Survivor show, Jenna her name was, and she was good-looking girl and, and didn't really – look she looked fragile didn't it? look that fit and she she carried a 15 kilo pack and i carried nothing right mm. and I, we walked for 20ks and my shoulder started to cramp up and my back started to seize up and then i started yeah. to get a big cramp in my left my left calf and i've i've never cramped in the army never cramped once in the army on any any kind of pack march and i wasn't even carrying anything and i started to cramp up and yeah and she took off
0: you're right, it's definitely conditioning because I was, I was training for Ironman a few years ago and I could jump on the bike and do a sub three hour 90K on the bike. Back then I was swimming two kilometers in 30 something minutes and I couldn't even dream of doing that now. But back then I couldn't have done Murph or Fran. So it's, it's all about what you're training for at the time, I guess. So I want to ask you about Iraq and the private security scene. It's one of those things where, you know, I considered it when I left because I like being on the tools and I like, I like combat. It's just, I mean, we'll talk about that in a minute, right? Cause we're not crazy. It's a, it's yeah. addictive, but I also have said to some friends, you know, I couldn't dream of going on operations without fire support, without the medical support, without everything in place, yeah. that safety net. And well, from what I see with the contractors is that sort of safety net doesn't exist quite the same way it does in, in the military. Would you agree with that? And how do you find that experience?
1: Well, I guess the main point from my perspective was that I hadn't been over there yet because my sit in the army was boring. You know, we, we went on pre vacation leave and we were going to go to Timor and it would have been perfect for my first deployment, but that never happened. And then, so I was bored, mate. I got out. This is after I, I did SAS selection and, and didn't make it. So I think I was 22. So I, I got out because the normal army, like we spoke about before, it was just boring. And, and Nothing was happening and then when I got out or just before I got out I had about a month to go then Then the boys end up going to Iraq or they would it was said that they were going to Iraq But I kind of had my discharge in and, and got out anyway And then I was looking, you know That's when all the private stuff started happening and, and to be honest I didn't know any different like I, I, I didn't actually know that I was what I was truly getting into and I just, I had a mate over there. They were setting up a company and and I got a gig over there. And I've written about it a couple of times before. There was articles that I read about what not to do when you go into private contracting. And I broke a lot of those rules (laughs) just because I had to get in, you know. I I rocked up at the airport and the guy, this big fat American guy with, it was all local guys that were running us around. And he gave me an AK with one magazine and some body armor, which was missing a backplate. And I had to decide there and then. I was 24 had to decide what I wanted to do. I could get on the plane and go back or I could have a crack and, you know, be, like like I said, I, I, I didn't know what I was – I was guess I, I was ignorant, didn't really know what I was actually getting into. But now, if that was the same situation, no way. You wouldn't even find me in the fucking airport. Yeah. it was young, not being experienced and wanting to get in on the action. Mm-hmm. And then it got better after that and I obviously learned different things and a couple of times while I was doing the contracting for – it was on and off for, for around two years between 2004 and 2006 – I said no on different different things, different jobs that they were going on and different people in charge I wasn't happy with and you're right, not having the fire support, not having the just any kind of support really. And I just said no on a few times and, and they actually turned out to be really good decisions. Guys got pretty you know, they got in trouble because the right guys weren't running it. Then other gigs that I had over there I was I was mainly on base, doing base security, which, you know, I was happy with because I wasn't out on the roads and then seeing all these guys that contractors just getting carved up over there because you know the equipment that they had the job that they were doing it was just you know, they were sitting ducks for ambushes and, hmm. and not getting that support even though they did talk about it you know the, the military did definitely did back up the contractors to a certain extent but it's nothing like say what we had in afghan and comparing the two i mean i had a lot of front in iraq don't get me wrong but it would be hard when I, when we went com- with Commandos and seeing how professional it was and the support you got, including not only fire sport, but medical support, which was huge. And, and doing the job, it was a lot harder physically, obviously, in Commandos. <laughs> and some things were probably more dangerous, but um, you, you almost felt safer. Yeah. So I yeah. don't know if I'd do it now. You know, maybe if I was on uh, – I almost went with hearts. So and maybe if you're on the, one of the gigs with all the boys that you knew – but that's a big problem, problem with contracting. You don't know who you're getting. So yeah, it's, it was a big eye opener, mate. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, I probably I'd be very reserved about who I went with if I was to do it again.
0: You know, I often wonder. There's no real support for guys who've been in serious stouches in contracting when they come back. I mean, they would have seen some yeah. brutal shit, and you know, DVA is not going to help those guys. And yet, if you think about it, the American military really relied on those contractors. They couldn't have done a security job over there without them. So it was a second army, really. But they've they've got an army for free, you know, without being having to have to fit the bill for them later on in life. So it's a little bit disingenuous, I think.
1: Exactly. Well, I read a good article recently, and it was, um, it was saying how contractors should actually be classed on the same level as the military, because a lot of them are ex-military, so they should be thought of as veterans and warriors, because a lot of them are. And... You're exactly right with that point that, yes, they get paid more money, but it's actually cheaper for the government because they don't have to back it up. They don't have to support these guys when mm. they get fucked up or, or injured or broken physically and mentally. And, and you're right, there would be a lot of guys dealing with a lot of issues because of that fact. But, the, I mean, we were, we were looking after an American military base over there. So we were actually looking after American soldiers, not just local soldiers or, or the local populace. It was actual American soldiers were on our base who couldn't do their own security, couldn't do their own force protection.
0: Yeah, so the next question I want to ask you is sort of you saw what you saw in, in Iraq and with the private security side and then you came back to Australia and then you, you re-enlisted. And, you know, what was the decision behind the re-enlist and SFDRS? I mean, I'm a massive champion of that cause the OC selection wing in 2007 and really reignited it because they were thinking at the time about scrapping it and we you know I put a lot of effort into making sure that it was stood up for the future you know there's no you know mistaking the fact that most of our gallantry winners you know a lot of the gallantry winners from Afghanistan were SFDRS guys so there's something special about them there's no doubt about that and you you went into the Special Forces Direct Recruiting Scheme. No, I
1: didn't do that. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No, no, I, I was in... I joined Reserves. Oh, right. Yeah, so I, I I specifically joined Reserves, so if I didn't make it, I didn't want to be stuck in the Army again.
0: Oh, that's pretty smart. Okay. Yeah,
1: you, I think I told you about that. You you gave me a second chance on it.
0: Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, Cause yeah. Because
1: I, I, I would have had to... And I talk about this extensively in my my course, yeah, that I failed the uh, one of the runs for the entry test that's right and then i got another crack and then i failed the run on the selection and you got, i got another crack
0: yeah so one of the one of the things that i've you might have seen me talk about it and you know i'm not into mutual backslapping or anything but one of the lessons that came out of that for me in in sort of later years is just don't be a dick you know what i mean so because the fact of the matter is we, yeah, I remember that. I, I don't remember you specifically, but I remember the situation because the warrant officer came up to me and said, oh, we've had this guy fail it. We're going to send him home. And then I said, "Why? You, how much did he fail by? And I think he failed by a few seconds. And we were going to run another one the next morning for the guys that were coming in on the on the next flight, pick him up. They said to me, oh, this guy said he had a flu or something. I might be mixing up some things. But, yeah, I remember that we I used to say to the guys all the time to, you know, if guys just miss out, could be any number of factors why. And if there's another opportunity, give those guys the opportunity to show that they can do it. But, yeah, what what was the catalyst behind re-enlisting? What was in your mind?
1: I still really enjoyed that environment. And I guess because I'd, I'd failed SAS selection in 2002. I actually did it with RS. And he, we did Happy Wanderer, mate, and he did it in two days. And he had two days off. And the rest of us had taken four days to do it. I got well I effectively got injured on that one, although I did I did actually pull myself off and the medical start yeah, much of it much now.
0: Have you let that go?
1: I have, but it was it was one it was the driver force of why I re enlisted, why I went for it again. Mm. Because the fact is I wanted to know if I was tough enough, you know. it, it was it was to know if I could actually finish a selection course, and I was going to go for, for SAS, and the reason I went for Commandos is, is, could I, I? had a schoolmate, Sean McTeague, I went to school with, mm. and a couple of other boys down there, and they said, well, you know, it, it's it's basically on. They gave me the pros and cons, and you know, the pay and the conditions and all this kind of stuff, and I go, I said, well, okay, I'll have a crack at Commandos, and and the driver was because I wanted to know if I was tough enough, and mm. I needed to I needed to find out if I could push myself to the absolute limit because I didn't find that I had that on the SAS course, even though it was just about to go into lucky dip, it. I didn't feel as if I was totally in the hole, and I'd really push myself. It was more of the injury, mm. so that was my main thing. I wanted to know deep down if I if I had what it took. And I think that's important for people because. And I, and, I, and I say this to people all the time, but, you know, you want to find out either way. I would rather know and and know what my limitations are and then be able to work on and and push through and, and apply that growth mindset. But rather than be the person at, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, forever thinking, could I have got through? Maybe I could have. And and just be full of regret in not knowing.
0: No, it makes makes perfect sense mate you know i think that what could have been you know you could have gone past sas selection had a whole different completely different life you know you're not you might not be the you know the reese dowden that's you know what i mean that you are today
1: yeah yeah exactly well i probably wouldn't have got done, done contracting or no. I'll probably yeah you're right
0: so you know you you, you sort of and I've said this before, I think that while you have to take responsibility for your own direction and in, in life, sometimes the subconscious decisions that you make are the right ones at the right time. So, righto, second commando regiment deployments. What years did you go over?
1: 2009. I was a gunner for. for um...
0: That was the first of the easy tours. Yep.
1: <laughs> Cake walks. <laughs> um... And then I went over in 2011 with snipers. Yeah, so 2009 was all the vehicle movements and, and, you know, the whole patrol for, you know, almost four weeks type thing. So two completely different deployments and two deployments that were equally, you know, really good.
0: Just to let people know, so what we're talking about is in 2009 you started, you know, we started to look at using Bushmasters more than previously we were using special reconnaissance vehicles so cut down land, land rovers and stuff previous to that and 2009 was really the end of 2008 I guess when the OC at the time started to phase in the Bushmasters um, you still would have had uh, LRPV with mortars and stuff I assume
1: well we, we had all the SRVs so we rolled around SRVs but we had been we had Bushmasters as well in support okay. uh, but we had the srvs and the, the lrpvs as
0: well for mortars yeah. yeah and yeah. the snipers were in there were in the um atvs so my my first tour we had all srvs and and only i think three bushmasters and then then when i went back over there in 2010 it was pretty much all bushmasters so somewhere in that time they decided to replace me which you know i sort of I really liked cruising around in the SRVs, you know, that situational awareness and being able to eyeball people and then having hit three IEDs on my tour, you know, I guess if they had been SRVs, I'd be a different person today, I think, because everyone walked away from them unscathed where they wouldn't have if they were SRVs.
1: Yeah, exactly right. It's certainly
0: the payoff, isn't it? Yeah. Any memorable moments from the tours? Any good contacts or anything that you sort of want to share?
1: The big ones in, in talking about those SRVs was we, we went up we went up through Kajaki. This is sort on of our first patrol and went for almost four weeks. It was probably three and a half weeks.
0: Yeah, I know what you're going to talk about. Mm.
1: Yeah, and that's when that's when Dam- Damo lost his legs mm. on that. Mm. But before that, we were going up a road and that and um that's when Brett Till got killed. So we found nine IEDs along that road and. Mm. I guess people, when they're probably listening to this, they're like, you know, some people would look, be like, shit, you know, that, that must have been scary or that must have been, you know, a pretty tense situation. But I didn't find it too intense. I actually wasn't that worried about IEDs for some reason. I mean, we had all the engineers and the dogs and everyone, they were really, they were really bloody good at their job. Mm. And they found, I mean, on this road, we found nine IEDs. They actually found them all and the fact that Brett was was killed it, it was very very unfortunate but he was really good at his job and that mm. was just i guess unlucky you know he did everything right and mm. it still went off you know there's obviously an element of chance in there as well but i I didn't, I didn't really feel too bad and i didn't feel like i was i was dreading i you know getting hit by an IED because there was so many people involved and if you think about it the chance of being killed or the chance of being injured even or hit by an IED for the amount of blokes that went over there is pretty small. And not to say that I not saying I wasn't, you know, anxious or a bit scared or nervous sometimes mm. like that's just human nature because you're in that environment. But i don't think i was dreading driving over an id at every any given point so we went through that pass we were trying to take the pressure off the brits that were doing a, a relief in place so we, mm. we came through the top and and hit kajaki and we had a few ticks leading up to that and that was actually some good full engagements to get blooded i suppose mm. to, to get used to the situation and and that's when actually the the, the team commanders i mean i uh thompson is my team commander and he was he was brilliant you know mm. he really he'd been there before he, he was very he was a really good team command in, in the fact that he was very clear and concise about what mm. he wanted and very decisive in his yeah. actions. And he, he said to us one day, the day before we hit the top of Kajaki where the main settlement was, he said, you know, this is going to happen tomorrow, so just be ready. And he said it real matter, matter-of-factly. Mm. And I thought, well, you, you know, how sure are you? And then as soon as we got within, you know, 400 metres, it was on. And I, But I remember actually, like, he he, he was really – he was brilliant. Someone to – certainly that I'd follow into battle again and and my 2IC was Rhett and he's one of these guys that um was the same persona that he would he would have when you're having a a morning coffee you know when when everything was really benign he came across the exact same kind of person when a, 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 a um an rpg landed in front of us and blew you know blew dirt all over the vehicle and he mm-hmm. just kind of shook it off and, and you know didn't say anything real cool calm character made so having those two as as your team commander until i see especially being new like first deployment it was it was it was really brilliant and you learn a lot from those two but yeah. coming into i guess coming into kajaki we hit them for sort of two or three days or three days i think and it was gentleman's hours you know we wouldn't go until you know around lunchtime, and then <laughs> for a few hours and then come out so that was pretty cool but I remember um as we as we came into it, they were they were launching a lot of IDs uh, sorry, a lot of RPGs and we were a couple of vehicles back behind this um little hill and these RPGs were coming over and landing all in and all around the vehicles and dust was getting blown up all around us and nobody got injured, but it was that actually felt, I guess, more like a war movie that um than any other time that I'd been over there. it yeah. was a good it was it was a really good experience actually.
0: Yeah, you know, I've talked about it before we had a Sort of similar thing down in Gumbad, where we had the the company down there, and we got was meant to be a couple of day operation, and it ended up being seven days because the helicopters couldn't get in or out because of a dust storm, and so we had no food, no water, other than what we we're winning locally. You know, we're down to the last couple of magazines each. The radio batteries were all were all just about shot, and we were yeah. talking about going through a company E and R plan, but you know, you talk about you know H was the CSM and I had you know I was one of the platoon commanders and Chris was the other one and there was a couple of there was a couple of really standout well all of the team commanders were brilliant and I think the Taliban knew that we were on the back foot as well because they started massing some big attacks against us and it was more like you know something you'd read about in Korea or you know World War Two, where where there was these huge engagements that lasted for days rolling gun battles and you know, and then we finally got a couple of CH forty sevens to come in through the dust to pick us up, and the Taliban gave us a great big fuck you on the way out by firing a RPG over the back ramp of the <laughs> over the CH forty seven as we got on it, and the other platoon left one of their quad bikes. They couldn't even get the quad bike up on it. They were under that much pressure to get on the on the helicopter, so they just left it there, and we we blew it in place. That's a whole other story, collateral damage and people climbing on it and stuff. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people. A lot of Australian public don't realise the the intensity of the conflict. You know, some of those gunfights. You know, some of the things that went on over there, like Kajaki. When when the guys first went there in two thousand and seven, company went there. They were, they were fighting for nearly four days in and around those Karez systems. And yeah. you know, it's while the um, turbine was being moved into the dam there, and the the commando company group that went down there. You know, they were being they were being mortared with White foss mortars and. You know they were being they were on the receiving end more than they were giving it to them initially until they reaffirmed dominance over the place. But um, if you've got a com- a commando company that's under that sort of pressure, that's a huge enemy force. That's not a little. That's not a couple of guys. That's yeah. you know you're talking hundreds probably. So, yeah, and people don't realise that.
1: So I think people really think it's more of a because they're used to you know peacekeeping roles like mm. Timor or Cambodia or even Bogaville, all the small engagements of Rwanda. Or Somalia that they, they had back in the day but um, you know when people ask me what was it like and I said well it was it was war Yeah, you know it's what you expect war to be you know you, you have war. a special forces unit yeah. that is dumped into the really bad places of, of Afghanistan and by bad I mean that if you can't walk around there without a certain number of troops without a certain number of support you know a, a number of different tiered elements of, of air support and
0: So, start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on slash people today.
1: Overrun or without cost, you know, coming up with a, with a lot of casualties. So, you need to be fully prepared. And then when you land in those environments, you are 100% guaranteed to get in contact with the enemy. And that's what exactly what was happening with and you're right. It wasn't just a couple of guys running around. It was a lot of guys who were zealots and were, were absolutely determined to to give it to us yeah. and not just fire a couple of rounds, but Yeah, yeah to fire a lot of rounds and use the OEDs and use the RPGs and whatever whatever they had and no matter what we threw at them and, and dumped in regards to air because we, we dumped a lot of munitions from the different elements of their support you roll back in the next day and get anywhere near those those compounds and you're at it again you're right i think people definitely don't understand how how brutal it could be over there but in saying that you know we we were (laughs) were bloody well trained and we certainly were able to handle it
0: yeah no i agree and so you you and i've got a close friend that we share which is uh paul kale most dangerous man on the earth.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Australia's toughest man. I was, oh, That's my greeting to him whenever I see him.
0: Yeah. So, how important is BJJ to you, to to your life, and to where you're at with mindset and and everything like that?
1: Mate, it, it is right up there. It's probably, it, well, it's the number one thing I do. You know, I don't do a lot of of other exercise. I don't. I don't do. You know, anywhere near as much. You know, CrossFit style exercise that I used to. I still do a little bit of it and I do a little bit of weightlifting, but predominantly I'll do, you know, four, five, six days a week of wrestling. I wrestled a little bit before I got in the army. Oh, no, sorry, after I got out of the army the first time I did a, I did a little bit of it for a couple of years, which, you know, a couple of years in, in jiu-jitsu is, is bugger all basically. Mm. So then I went into commandos. I didn't do a lot of it because so many bloody injuries in jiu-jitsu that and neck reefing and, and sore backs and shoulders that I didn't want to be having to do the job, you know, in commandos with, you know, injuries as well because obviously there's, a, there's enough enough of those and the job's physically demanding as it is. But once I got out, I've really, I've like, last five years gone really hard at it and it's probably only in the last year that I've realised how, um, you know, people – high belts black belts have been black belts for quite a while they talk about how bjj is life like that's a saying in bjj bjj is life and i've never really understood that i thought it was a bit of a you know a, a bit of a piss take really I thought it was i guess people who hadn't really experienced much else that were were trying to identify with something i don't know i don't know what i thought but i didn't take it much you know too seriously but well since i've been doing the last few years really hard it it's kind of a saying that that is true because in jujitsu, it, it, it's you know you you I guess you get in there you not you don't know anything you know, and you, you just get toweled up all the time and, and it's and it's certainly a beat down to your confidence and especially if you've done a lot of martial arts in, in other forms and you're just getting toweled up by you know sixty kilo dude to a young kids and they they're all over you right? you, yeah. you start wrestling and then they're they're on your back choking you out.
0: When we used to do platoon training, they used to put me with bloody Trini as a joke, and Trini used to. Choke the shit out. of <laughs> Yeah, it,
1: it's it's crazy. That's why the sport's so good. Oh, for, for those sports.
0: listening, Trini's a little—I don't know—Asian. Like he would have been back then. He's probably a lot bigger now. But back then, he was sixty-five kilos, if if nothing else. And he yeah. would spider monkey on my back, and then and then I'd go to sleep, <laughs> and everyone would take great delight in the platoon commander being choked out by the smallest guy in the platoon. But when you're doing when you're when you're wrestling, you know, one of the things I learned from Paul. And I think this is really important for those people who, who want to defend themselves. I, I mean, I've done unarmed combat through the army, my you know, the whole career, everyone does. And in, and in two commando regiment, it's a thing, right? It's, it's one of those skills that you have to be able to use. So, so you know, you, you train at it. I haven't done, other than judo, when I was a kid, I haven't done much martial arts. But one of the things that, that Paul taught me was, if you're not used to getting up close and personal with another man... It's really going to be hard to defend yourself when the time comes, because, because you need to be able to close distance, you need to be able to get inside their striking zone, you need to be able to control their head and neck. And if you're worried about getting getting in you know, like say say there's some, some ice addict you know who's sweaty and smelly and bloody bigger than you and he's going off his nut at you, if you can't get inside, then you need to run. You know, if you're not able to get inside and control him, and most people don't make that that conscious decision to right now, I'm going to fight, and that means I need to get in and fight. And unless you're training to do that, like I can, I can say I can do it now. I'll say it, and 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 I'll be presented with that, and I'll switch to okay, now now the fight is on for my life. I'm going to get inside and I'm going to choke this person out. But the problem is, unless you actually train to do that, that's really hard to do.
1: Well, mate, it's exactly like us training for an overseas deployment. Yeah, and that's why stress inoculation training and really and really realistic and accurate stress inoculation training is so important. And you, you have to train, like they say, you're gonna have to you have to train like you're gonna fight. Yeah. You can't just expect to do it on the day because you know, as we all know that that saying, you'll never rise to the occasion in battle. You'll always sink to your level of training. Hmm. And if you're if you are not trained to that environment, you're not trained to deal with somebody who's aggressive and coming at you and, you know, really wants to hurt you, you're not going to perform the way you want, you know? And that's why any kind of martial arts training is is really good, especially when you're when it's quite realistic. I mean, even, you know, MMA-style training is, is, is quite good, you know?
0: I just thought of a question to ask you now because it's topical at the moment and I want to know what you think. McGregor Mayweather.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: now, remember... The answer you give now, people are going to already know the outcome when they're listening to this.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, well, well, I guess what I'd say it's, it's I mean, I, I've, I've kind of not written McGregor off before, but I I've thought, gee, you know, he, he, he loves to talk, and mm. you know, is he overstepping the boundary? And he hasn't yet.
0: And that's not your. That's not that's not your style. So I can see why, I can see why you would. See someone with a big mouth like that and go, "Oh, yeah, you're going to get your ass handed to you." But he he does back it up, doesn't he?
1: It's a mindset, and mm-hmm. and it's a it's a it's a way that he uses his mindset, or it's a way that he gets into mindset the mindset of winning. You know, he's like Sun Tzu said. You know, uh, warriors win in their mind first before they go to battle. So he does that, and he does it very well. And he thinks he can win. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not a um, it's not a show in any way whatsoever. Yeah. but. Mayweather has never been beaten and he's a boxer. So they both think that they're going to win. Mm. I and and I don't mind saying this and I don't mind being proven wrong, but I can't see how Mayweather would be beaten.
0: A lot of people a lot of people are saying it's ridiculous. You know, it's a ridiculous thing, but it's ridiculous, but we all want to see it. And interestingly, I think Mayweather does something that McGregor probably hasn't seen before, which is I know that he's fastidious in watching the other person. He he does this center of gravity construct on the person, right? And then he pits his strengths against their weaknesses. He does it he's exactly like what Special Forces does. Yeah. And and so, whereas I think what, McGregor probably does something similar where he you know, breaks down, but it's very difficult to do, to do with boxing. Very difficult to watch someone else's style and then adapt your style to them, which Mayweather does really well. But I think that McGregor's going in and his tool bag is big, but he's only able to use one asset of the tools that he has. Apparently, he's a good boxer and he's really awkward. He's a really awkward boxer, which, you know, but then so is Pacquiao. So, yeah,
1: it's- you see when, when, when Connor fought Jose Aldo and mm. he, he knocked him out at the start because um, Jose Aldo came, came in and probably overreached? But if you've seen the replay, Aldo landed the hook on McGregor. So he could have been—it was right on the chin. He could have been knocked out. But it could have been a double knockout. So imagine getting, imagine um, Connor oh, yeah. allowing Mayweather to do that. And Mayweather doesn't knock out and knock out a, a lot of people. No, right. that's not really his style. But he's not going to overcommit like Aldo did.
0: And I guess one of the other one of the other aspects to it as well is, you know, if if Mayweather's able to protect his chin, which is by all accounts pretty strong anyway, if he's able to protect his head. McGregor's got to be able to try and get through those defenses, which then opens up his body, which he's probably not used to getting body shots the way he's about to get body shots, you know, yeah. because a box – and those gloves are so much heavier. I mean, there's so many variables to this. It's going to be so fascinating.
1: What, what I'll what just finish off with, the uh, I guess, uh, yeah. just with the jujitsu.
0: Yeah, I took us off track. Sorry, man. <laughs>
1: That's, you're right, just in, in the, it being like life, because, you know, when you start, you don't know anything – and then you're just getting toweled up mm. and then you slowly start to learn and start to apply some new processes and some new techniques. And you 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 then use them on someone and you start to build that confidence. You start to think you're getting better and then you just get towed up, mm. you know, and your progress. You, you, you take a massive hit to your confidence mm. and then you have to kind of build that back up and again start on that process of getting better and better and better and better and then you get knocked down again and this is you know this happens over years and that's why it's kind of like life you know because you're getting knocked down all the time and you want to see that progress to get better Mm. and to you know build that confidence again and then you're getting knocked back and you've got to deal with that Mm. and you've got to deal with with that in a way where you don't where you apply you know emotion uh, a high degree of degree of emotional intelligence because Mm. in wrestling if you get angry and if you try and use too much energy and too much strength to try and get out of a position, well, then you're just going to burn yourself out, and then you're going to get even more dominated. So you've really got to check the ego, which is very hard to do. And I, I still struggle with that, and, yeah. and I'm a brown I've been doing it for years mm. because human nature is if somebody's attacking you and somebody's wrestling you, you want to defend it with all your life. So being able to be in a fight with someone who is on you, and being able to control your breathing and remain you know emotionally intelligent and try and think through a situation. Yeah. If you can apply, if you can apply that to life, that's that's where the connection of jiu jitsu and life is because every time you go to roll, you have an opportunity to apply those processes. You have an opportunity to be more emotionally intelligent, mm. to check your ego, to breathe you know, take a moment to breathe when you're under pressure, mm. and to try and refocus, and to try and solve problems under stress.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's where that's what I've learned about jujitsu in the last couple of years, and that's why it's kind of like life.
0: Agreed, and I it, it makes me think back to, you know, all the times that I've had sort of JJ on sort of on top of my chest and face. You know, where he's and he's got his armpit like right over your face there, and, and like I'm quite claustrophobic to be honest it's a it's a i didn't realize it was as big a weakness as it was but the army exposed that over the years you know you would just have to lay there sort of get a little bit of a you know triangle of the of the hand up under up under his throat to sort of make a little bit distance so you can get a breath in and you've just got it you're right if he's if you freak out you're done if you remain calm you might get enough breath to to stay alive but um you know and i used to wonder why does he always get me in this position he could do he could get me in anything, you know, from here. And he could, he's yeah. he's that, well, he was he was that good compared to me. I'm sure you'd be able to give him a little bit of a run for his money these days. He's a bit, I don't know, a bit older now. Am I setting you up for failure here, mate? Yeah, he used to do this and he used to, you know, I'd spend 10, 15 minutes on my back trying to get a hip, trying to get one of the hips up to then, you know, and there's no way I was moving him off, but it was just, I didn't realize at the time he was just training me to be uncomfortable, training me to calm down and, you know. Yeah, and ultimately it ended up, you know, I ended up fighting the ODA major, ODA captain. Then two of us did a did a exhibition fight for the platoons and the, the ODA. Just before we we went into it, the guy was like five foot eight. You know, little nuggety thing. And I and I'd had a fair bit of time now getting schooled by the guys in the platoon, so I was ready for it. And I was I thought I am gonna wipe the floor with this guy. And just before we went in there, JJ leans over to him and he goes, "Oh, by the way, this guy over here," he goes. He was not just a college wrestling champion, he was the college wrestling champion in the US. <laughs> and go. I was like, and then I just spent the next, you know, five minutes getting played with. <laughs> Rolled around and choked. And it does it's it is it is one of those things where, you know, I, I now I think from the experiences I had in Special Forces, especially uh in the last few years there, you know, you never know who you're walking with in society now. Like I don't underestimate anyone. You know, and I've seen that in my CrossFit journey as well. I've been towered up by a few, you know, people who to look at you think, oh, yeah, that guy's going to be all that guy or that girl's going to be nothing special. And then they tower you up. So I wish I'd learned that a lot earlier on to, to to not take people at face value.
1: That is such a bloody good rule, mm. you know, because it's so true. And that's, I guess, underestimating people is really about ego as well. Mm. You know, you're know, you underestimating thinking, oh, well, they're not any good, as in I'm better or I can beat that person, where it should be just not so much who's better, but let's just have a battle or Brilliant. I'm just going to try and not think about it. Like Bruce Lee says, no mind. I'm, t- I'm not going to think about winning or losing. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it in that moment. Right.
0: Put your best effort in and then and then they put their best effort in and one of those best efforts will be better
1: without any preconceived notions about who's better or not better
0: yeah tough tough to do
1: yeah very tough to do isn't it i guess that's part of the journey
0: let's talk about operator edge how's it going
1: it's good mate it was um the main reason i got into it was i needed a change from from a previous business and i'd learn a lot in regards to not only mindset but how to promote it and how to market online And, and that i had one of those moments which i talk about in my course actually that you know i was in the kitchen and i wasn't happy with where i was and my, my wife even said to me you know you can't keep being unhappy you can't mm. keep being in this position in the kitchen complaining about where you're at and i and this this is one of those moments of clarity like like i was on selection course running down singleton you know main road Doing the three point two thinking I was gonna fail. It was one of those moments where you just have to make a decision to to move forward. Yeah. And I, I just took the jump and it was because I wasn't happy and yeah. I needed to take control of my life. I need to start being happy and start going in the direction that I wanted. And right. so that's that's how that's how it basically started.
0: And so you had a you had a passion for it, obviously, and then what you needed to do is then implement that that passion and and try and you know, because you're not, you're like me. You're not doing it to make money. You're doing it to because you've got a story to tell, and you've got you've got people to inspire.
1: Exactly right. And you know, it's interesting too that these, or yeah, before you get into special forces, you have this idea, idea of, of these guys that are secretive and, mm. um, you know, they're they're elite and they're the best of the best and all this kind of thing. And you, you have a real, um, or you really look up to them, I guess, mm. and, because you don't know a lot out of it. A lot about what goes on, and a lot about them, and then when you get in there, you kind of you really forget about that because everybody else has done what you've done, so mm. you're just one of the other boys, right? Mm. But then since being out and, and since uh, teaching these people about mindset and young young guys who want to be SF, they really do look up to you, and you kind of you kind of don't realise how much you've learned, and how much you've gone through, and how much you can teach these guys and and impress prestige guys and, and, and how much they can actually learn from you. Mm-hmm. And when I thought about that, of everything that I'd gone through in the unit, that's when I thought, well, a lot of people could benefit from that and especially of of how to – the big point that I get across is how to deal with failure, you know, because I think that's that's a an integral part of life. Like it's going to happen no no matter what. I think if you can really – that's when I broke it down about when I started to do my course, I broke down really about how, how did I kind of get – mentally tough or how, what did i go through what the processes and experiences i went through to to get to where i was and and broke that down and and, and started teaching and, the, and one of the biggest things is dealing with failure and it's it's, it's good mate because i get you know i get people from all walks of life obviously promoted as kind of you know that i'm ex-military so i get a lot of people that are not necessarily just want to join the military You know, you do get guys that would obviously want to go SF, but you get people from all walks of life. It's crazy when you know people contact me and their their psychologists, for example, or their accountants, or their you know IT guys Mm. who who are never going to join the military, and never want to join the military, but realise and understand that the mindset of, of being in the military and and. You know, in particular in, in a special forces unit, that's something that they can really learn from. So it's been great, mate, and it's, and it's been awesome just passing on you know lessons learned.
0: That's cool. And we with the with the whole Warrior U program, you know, we're about um, mentoring. I guess mostly the young kids to the cadets, and then the people who want to change a direction in their in their life. We're going to branch out into special forces direct recruiting, and then. In the next rollout will be Navy and, and Air Force as well, including all the officer entries. One of the things that we don't do is go into that space of, you know, men- mental preparation so much or resilience, because I think I'd be pretty good at teaching people resilience for combat, you know, because of the stuff that I've done with my own platoon with regards to Dave Grosman's on killing and on combat, which, you know, is the reason I think, and the guys can thank me later if they want. It's the reason they don't have PTSD, and and because of the because of the type of training that I was fortunate to be allowed to run, and because of the visualizations that we did, you know, the guys. I think in most cases, if they weren't screwed up already, they didn't get screwed up on my watch. But you know, I think that if if there's guys and girls who are on the Warrior U program, which is basically you know a roadmap for them to go through their civilian life and then try and get into the military if they're finding self-doubt or if they're finding that they need to be able to just be tougher, I think that them doing your program is probably a perfect synergy between the two, between being mentored, you know, on their roadmap, on their journey, and then also going through a a program where they can, you know, toughen the hell up.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree, mate. And that's, that's a lot of the things I teach too. Is is building that that plan, and and obviously they they're going they're going to ha- have that goal already of joining the military, and you guys are going to help them define that path and how to actually get get to it. And then yeah, if they've got some more you know self development or mental toughness and mental resilience strategies and tools that they can use to get tougher, I think it's a very good combination, though, for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: We need to explore that a bit more and work out a way to yeah to synergize that for use of a wank word
1: you might find there's a little bit of that's probably a, a little bit of crossover too mate because um you know i i i teach you know building a plan as in using you know the SMEAC process and and all that all that kind of stuff as well as a, a bunch of other tools but yeah well certainly it will certainly be be good to cross load
0: yeah well you'll see what we you'll see what we're doing and i think you'll be pretty comfortable with the fact that we're you know it's all it's it's baby steps really you know some basic army lessons so why things are seen you know that sort of stuff some navigation a weekly lesson and then you know a a physical training program to prepare the guys to get in guys and girls to get into the military and then access to mentors which have been there and done that that they can then bounce questions off of but i think i think for most for most people they could probably benefit from from doing some resilience training anyway and you know that's something that i think they should look to you know i quite often tell people when they reach out to me for stuff like that is hey i don't have a program set up you need to see you need to go and see reese and i've heard good things about it so my last question if you could have dinner tonight with anyone dead or alive who would it be and why
1: that's a tough question i don't know if i've ever actually thought about that mate one of the people who I looked up to I've read a little bit about and I think who would be very interesting to have a chat with is Richard Branson mm. because I think his, philo- his philosophy on life is is really positive, you know, work hard, play hard at the same time. You know, from how he started his business and how he came from, from nothing really, I mean obviously a lot of people have got those kinds of stories but just the passion and the drive uh, and and things that, everything that he believes with uh, believes in is is would be really interesting to sit down and delve further into that because mm. obviously he is mentally tough. Mm. I mean, where where he came from, and he certainly didn't have any money, and he's he's built his entire empire. And to see what you know, to really delve into what he he was his you know motivation and his his drive, and and how he how he came back from setbacks and failures and and hurdles to reach where he was and. And how he leads people, and how he deals with people. Mm. Um, I think that would be a really interesting conversation.
0: Yeah, and I think the reason the reason I asked you that that question is we talk about who would you like to have dinner with, you know? And some people pick someone who's dead. Some people pick someone who's alive. But they're generally people you're not going to be able to have dinner with, right? You're not gonna. You're probably not going to get an audience with Richard Branson. I'd love it if you did. Um, if you could invite me, that'd be awesome. My point is, there's people out there who Probably know what he knows that you could, you know, sit down and pick their brains. And like I know, I I know an entrepreneur in Sydney who probably, yeah, I mean, he's not, he's not no Richard Branson, but he's an entrepreneur and he knows a lot of the same lessons. And there's a guy I used to work for, Anthony Morehouse, who was the CEO and owner of Dynamic, you know, and he, I mean, he would study all these entrepreneurs. So it's like sitting down with him anyway. And yeah, it's it's yeah. like it's like you sitting down with you know, Paul Cale, you're sitting down with one of the Gracies. I mean, yeah, you're sitting down with some Yeah, so yeah, so it's in, it's it's always interesting to hear people's people's thoughts on that because I think that, you know, we we quite often I mean you know, I don't want to be disrespectful at all to, you know, fallen commandos. I would you know, I'd like to sit down and have dinner with Brett Wood, you know, because I 'cause I haven't seen him, you know, forever. And and you sort of you sort of think to yourself, you know, it's like, gee, there was a there was a living legend, and I and I didn't spend as much time talking to him as I as I could have, you know. It's like yourself, like I, I I'm all in, you know. Like I, I appreciate your time being here because you never know when you get to talk to someone of your sort of you know same ilk, so to speak.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true, mate. Yeah, you, you had a good point there.
0: Hey, Rhys Dowden, thanks very much for your time today on the Coffee and Combat podcast. Where can people seek you out if they if they want to find out more or if they want to get involved with Operator Edge?
1: Yeah, so they can just look up OperatorEdge.com or they can go to my Facebook page, which is uh, Operator Edge, um, and they can email me if they like to, reese at OperatorEdge.com, mate. All
0: right. Thanks very much.